Well, good evening, friends. Uh, welcome to another of our Wednesday night studies. Uh, we are in 1 John chapter 4 tonight, and let me say welcome to our home. For those of you that watch on Wednesday nights, uh, I'm uh, recording from my living room. And so uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here with us tonight. Uh, lots of good stuff as we begin 1 John chapter 4. Uh, let me get you to do something right now as we begin. Go ahead right now in your social media feed and hit share. We challenge you to do this every time. Why? Because you never know who might see that pop-up. One of your friends on social media, they see that pop-up in their feed and instantly God uh, has a door open through which the Holy Spirit might draw them to Himself. So, you never know. It's the easiest thing that I'm ever going to ask you to do in order to share God's kingdom. Right now, go down, hit that share button, and uh, just you never know what God might do. So we're in 1 John chapter 4. Uh, let me read through verses 1 through 6, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll get right to tonight's study. Uh, beginning in verse 1 of 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world." They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let me pray for us. Father, we bless you uh, this evening, Lord. We thank you once again for your word. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides bone and marrow. It it divides soul and spirit. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And we thank you, Father, for giving us your word that gives us a strong foundation upon which to build our lives. And Lord, in times like these, it is a strong tower that the righteous run into. You are, and we learn who you are from your word, which tells us about the strong tower that you are, that the righteous run into, and they are safe. So we thank you for your word. Let us hide it in our hearts. Let it transform us tonight. Change us by it in Jesus' powerful name. Amen and amen. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us. First uh, John chapter 4 is such a great theological, um, just uh, foundational chapter in the Word of God. So we're going to get some good things tonight. First of all, if you remember, we've been talking about love, about loving one another. Now, let me tell you something right off the bat. First, uh, First John is John's thesis on love, much like 1 Corinthians. If you know, 1 Corinthians 13 is often referred to as the love chapter. That's Paul's thesis on love. 1 John chapter 4 is John's thesis on love. And let's remember who John is. He is the writer of the Gospel of John. Uh, he is also the writer that God uses to pen the book of Revelation. And he is the writer of these epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Uh, and he is also that single disciple who was closest to Jesus. Uh, we're going to refer to this term again later, but I want to teach it to you right now. It's the term Christocentric. 
Christocentric or a Christology. It's, it's that John's teaching here in this epistle is very Christ-centered. And so because of that, we learn something about what it meant between, or at least perhaps, what John learned from Jesus in regards to love. Um, verse 1. First, let me show you this first of all as we, as we think about all of that. And in the, <coughs> excuse me, and in the context of love, uh, in John's mind, love is not some mindless acceptance of everything. Sometimes when people think about what it means to be a Christian and they bring the concept of love to bear on that, uh, we sometimes think that that sort of means accepting everyone just as they are, accepting everything just as it is, because, well, that's what it means to be loving. It's just to care about others. But I want you to know that that's not a biblical picture of love, and that's also established very firmly in this chapter. John's thesis on love is not some mindless acceptance of anything. Um, it is rather, uh, we are rather urged by John to test the spirits to ascertain if they are from God or not. Right in this teaching on love. In fact, these first six verses are sort of sandwiched between this great exhortation in chapter 3 to love as a real litmus test of who we are in God. And then, beginning in verse 7, we're going to go back into that discussion about what love is. But in between those two sections, there is this admonition from John to test the spirits, to see if they are from God. Now remember the context of this admonition on John's part is in the context of love as a litmus test, as a determinant of the, of the genuineness of a person's relationship with the Lord. Right in the middle of that, though, he says we should test the spirit. So this isn't some, and let me borrow an old uh, 70s, 80s term. This isn't sloppy agape, if you remember that. In other words, where everything goes, that's not at all what John is saying. So let's look at verse 1 again. He says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Now, let's pause right there just for a second. He uses this term beloved again. Do you remember the Greek word? We've gone over it several times. It's the Greek word agape toi. It is this term, beloved. John sees it. He, he hears it in many of the, uh, uh, of the teachings of Jesus. Jesus used this term, we believe, to refer to the disciples. Uh, we pick it up in lots of other uh, New Testament writers that were with Jesus. So we believe Jesus may have very well uh, referred to those closest to him by this term. But it is, uh, it's used once again, and there's a pattern. Uh, the reason that I bring this up again and the reason that I've brought it up before, this use of this term beloved, this agape toy, is that, it, well, let me just demonstrate it this way, and then I'll tell you what my conclusion is. John uses this term in several places. He uses it in, and let me tell you what he uses it for, what he introduces. He says, beloved, and then he says something. So let me tell you what he says after the beloved in these places. In chapter 2, verse 7, he said, beloved, this is not an old, but a new commandment. All right. In chapter 3, verse 2, he says, I may have gotten that backwards, not a new, but an old commandment. Um, in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, we are children of God. Beloved, we are children of God, but it is not yet evident what we will be. 
in chapter 3, verse 21, he says, Beloved, we have confidence before God if our hearts don't condemn us. In chapter 4, verse 1, this one, he says, Beloved, don't give credence to every spirit. Test the spirits. In verse 7, he's going to say, Beloved, again, and he's going to reintroduce the concept of that being a great test of our spirituality. Beloved, let us love one another. And in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God loved us this way, we ought to love one another. Uh, why did I make such a big deal of that? It's for this reason. I really believe John, and this is not unique to me, uh, it's another theologian as well. He said this, John uh, he, he said this, uh, th this theologian said that John uses the term beloved to remind them of who they are, but also to introduce significant weighty ideas. Every time he uses the term beloved, he then follows with something very theologically, very doctrinally, very scripturally important. I just went through some of those. Here he says, beloved, test the spirits. It's important, he says. I want you to take note of this, that we test the spirits. Beloved, um, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, um, I read more than that, but he goes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. The word believe here, uh, do not believe, it translates uh, an interesting, uh, an interesting uh, uh, Greek verb, and the mood of it again is important. We've talked about mood before. He translates, uh, it translates the Greek word pisteo, pisteo, and it is the imperative mood that is used here. Do you remember the imperative again? It's a command. John switches from a narrative voice into an imperative, uh, an, a narrative uh, sort of tone into an imperative mood, which is then, uh, we, we understand that to be a command. He said, Beloved, do not, do not believe every spirit. Um, John's making a strong point here. So remember, we have two things here. We have this beloved that he uses in order to introduce weighty things, and then we have him using the imperative mood, which gives us a sort of a double whammy of pay attention to this. Test every spirit. Don't believe every spirit. Now, we'll talk about what he means by spirit. He said, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. All right. The same sense of testing, the same word when he uses the word test, and once again, we'll talk about what spirits are in a moment, but when he says, don't believe every spirit, but test them, that same word, that same word test is used by Paul when he's giving instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3 about testing the qualifications of a deacon. Let me give you that verse. It's 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 10 it'll bring a, a good sense of understanding as it relates to how we're supposed to test these spirits. Paul said this to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.10, And let them, referring to those who would seek the office of a deacon, let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So there's this examination, this, this understanding of who these men were 
And John is using that same Greek verb in an imperative mood, which is a command to say, listen, be careful, test, don't believe every spirit, test them to see whether or not they're of God or not. Not every spirit here, and let's talk about what John means when he uses the word spirit. Uh, In the New Testament, not every time the word spirit is used, is it a negative connotation. In fact, uh, many times where we see angels referred to in the New Testament, uh, they are they are the word spirit is used to attribute to them. Uh, Jesus in the book of Revelation uh, sends forth seven spirits unto the churches, and each of those references and several others those are very positive connotations. However, um, by far, by far, most of the references to this sort of usage of the word spirit or spirits in the New Testament carries a negative connotation. Evil spirits, demonic spirits, those sorts of things. It's more uncommon for uh, godly things to be referred to in, in, in this with this term than it is for negative things. Uh, as I said, evil, demonic things. So when Paul talks about uh, don't believe every spirit but test the spirits, in this case uh, it is somewhat neutral, but most of the time in the New Testament this word uses or it carries with it a, uh, a negative connotation. So Paul tells us, listen, don't believe every spirit but test them because many false prophets have gone out. I won't spend a lot of time on that. Uh, Paul is saying on the false prophets part, but Paul is saying that, listen, you've got to be careful. The question that then instantly arises in my mind is how? How do we test the spirits? Is it simply a uh, matter of spiritual discernment? Is it something that we, you know, we sort of, you know, check the wind, sort of what feels right? Is it our experiences? Uh, I know a lot of people that uh, if they've been hurt by a certain kind of person or a certain looking scenario, they're very very wary of that same sort of personality or that same sort of situation again. Is that how we do it? We let our past experiences be the filter through which we judge the spirit of a thing or the spirit as in the spiritual discernment. And a lot of times I think that's that's what gets passed off. Spiritual di- People say, uh, well, I feel a certain way and they pass it off as spiritual discernment when what it really is it's their, it's their experiences speaking to them. So how do we judge spirits? How do we judge whether something is of God or not of God? How do we remove the subjective nature? Now, I say that with a deep abiding um, respect for and hunger for spiritual gifts. I believe in them. I, I do exactly what Paul says I covet the best gifts. I pray with regularity. Lord, give me the gift of interpretation. Give me the gift of tongues. Lord, give me the gift of wisdom. Lord, give me the gift of governments and administration. Lord, give me, give me the gift of knowledge and working of miracles and, and all of those. Healing. Um, I want them all. Um, given at any, at any given time, I think every believer, every spirit-filled believer is a candidate for any of those spiritual gifts to work in their life. I I have to make a confession here to you. There is, uh, at least in my experience, and that's limited. Others would perhaps have a different uh, experience than me and a more full experience and a more knowledgeable experience than me. But there is in me always a subjective question as it relates uh, 
to my ability to rightly discern uh, what's me and what's the Spirit's voice. Now, there have been times when I absolutely knew, but Paul isn't talking about a subjective thing. So when he says test the Spirit's, He's going to give us a standard by which we do that that is not at all subjective. I hope that that doesn't uh, upset your apple cart. Um, I do believe that there's a subjective nature. I get mixed in. Uh, you get part me and part the Lord. Um, I, think that's the, I think that's the substance of our humanity, and it always will be. They'll, whatever we say as... And even when, when we are greatly used of the Lord, it's still going to pick up me when it comes through me. It's going to pick up you. And Paul or John here isn't suggesting that. He's saying that there's a way that we can know the spirit of a thing and it doesn't have to have anything to do with our history. It doesn't have, to have anything to do with our experience. How do we judge then? How do we take this subjective nature and know? How can we know? Here it is. Paul says this, or excuse me, John says this. First of all, he says... By this you know the Spirit of God. Now, I want to I I draw a, a really important distinction here. This isn't talking about the Holy Spirit. If you, I'm reading from the ESV. If you read from the King James, or I'm not sure about the New American Standard, some of the other ones, but it will say spirits from God. Right? This isn't talking... Sometimes when we hear the phrase Spirit of God, we are prone to think that, that well, that's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Um, but I think it's more, this would be a, 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 better, a better interpretation. There would be the Spirit from God. How do we know what's from God and what's not? John says this, By this you know the Spirit, and I'm going to put from God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, you might say, well, that's, that's too simple. It's too easy to say, Jesus is from God. Because I want you to understand that there's more than just spiritual beings that John is speaking about when he uses the word spirit, I believe. We, we judge the spirit that is in a person. We judge the spirit of an idea that we have, perhaps. But there is absolutely the connotation here about judging spiritual beings to know whether they are. But you'll see as we go through this that it's more than just uh, understanding that there's a spiritual being behind something and we judge that. It's more than that. What kind of spirit is controlling a person? Perhaps, uh, perhaps all of those are connected to spiritual beings, but I want to make sure that you understand that you're not just talking about judging whether or not there's a demon present. This is more applicable to everyday life than just those moments when you might actually come in contact with a demon oppressed or demon possessed or someone under, uh, you know, somebody that's demonized in some way. So this is more than that. How do you know? He says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh. How do we recognize which spirits are from God? Here's that word that I introduced you to, the, to in the beginning of this. The proof is Christological. It centers around the person and the lordship and the incarnation of Jesus. Now this is a pretty hefty theological truth, but it is powerfully practical 
in your life and in my life. The proof of whether something is from God, whether a spirit is from God, whether, let me, let me put it right down where we live, whether a person is from God has to do with what they do with Jesus. And it's more than just the profession that comes out of their mouth. The proof, as I said, is Christological. What does the Spirit indicate about Jesus coming in the flesh as the Messiah? And how does that Spirit react to the Lordship of Jesus as Christ's or as God's Son incarnate? When you come upon an individual and they, they have some spiritual acumen, they... Let me, let me put it in a um, sort of a not real, um, I don't know, a not, not complimentary way. They talk a good game. How do you know if they're the real deal? Well, what do they do with Christ's lordship? What do they do with Him being the Son of God? What do they say? What does their life reveal about Jesus being God's Son? How do they react to that? In contrast, the spirit of Antichrist, which is in the world, denies that Christ came, that He was God, and that He is worthy of our devotion. Now, that is more than profession. In other words, that's more than just what comes out of their mouth. The scripture tells us that even the demons believe and tremble. Do you remember the story in the scripture where... Um, and? Um, it is, uh, it's Peter, and I always get this confused between Peter and Paul, but it's Peter. And Peter is ministering, and there is this girl who turns out later in the story to be demon-possessed. But she follows uh, Peter around and those with him, and daily she says, Listen to these men. These men are servants of the Most High God. Man, that sounds good, doesn't it? It says after several days... Peter's spirit becomes vexed and he turns and he rebukes the devil and cast it out of her. And then those who, she was a servant girl, those who she served, who basically owned her, uh, they got very angry because they, they derived a lot of money from her ability to, to tell the future. Um, that wasn't godly at all. And yet it was saying the right thing. You're going to run into a lot of people, a lot of things, a lot of circumstances that might sound good, that might appear good, but we need something that's not subjective. That's what I mean. We need something that's more than just how a thing sounds or what our experiences might tell us. We need something solid. All right, here it is. How does that spirit respond to the lordship of Jesus? Is it submitted? Is it humble? Is it worshipful? Is it, is it changed and transformed? You begin to see in how a spirit responds to Christ as God's Son as the test for whether or not it's from God or not. If it doesn't submit to the Lordship of Jesus, if it doesn't matter what it says, it's of, it's of Antichrist. It doesn't say it is the Antichrist, but it is an Antichrist spirit. It is a spirit that, that takes on the form of godliness, but it denies the power thereof. Uh, John is saying that that's the way you can tell what's of God and what's not. How does it 
confess Jesus Christ and Him having come in this flesh and what that does in relation to, to everything. Uh, we recognize what spirits are from God by that absolute, I believe, litmus test. Here's why. Because you, you, you can't fake that for very long. Eventually, that's going to reveal itself. And as I said, the proof is Christological. What does the Spirit indicate, that Spirit indicate about Jesus coming in the flesh as the Messiah? And how does that Spirit react to the Lordship of Christ as God's Son incarnate? In contrast, the Spirit of Antichrist, which is in the world, denies that Christ came, that Christ was God, and that Christ is worthy of our lives, of our devotion. It's all about Jesus and what you do with Him. Listen to verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What does it mean to overcome them? You have overcome them. Now, he's talking about these spirits. He's talking about this. And let me... Uh, I believe in a literal translation of the Scriptures, and I don't like to go very far from the literal translation of the Scriptures, but I do think that John is speaking about things more, as I said, than just the potential encounter you might have with a spiritual being, uh, a, a, a demonic spirit. I think we are spiritual beings, but uh, something other than worldly, supernatural being. All right, What does it mean to overcome this, to overcome them? Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. What does that mean? This is, in my estimation, a doctrinal and an ethical victory that's been won. What is that victory? What is the, what is the thing that proves the victorious nature that you and I share? What is it? Is it subjective? Is it some... some it, okay, the scripture says that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I love that. But, but I don't have access to that book every day to check whether or not my name's in it. <laughs> I know that it is. You run across somebody, you, you can't, you can't you know, Google Lamb's Book of Life, find the reference, and look up a name. So how do we know? What is the victory that we have won? What is the, what is the litmus test of our victory? Let's keep it in the context of John. What has he said is the litmus test before? First of all, it's love. What motivated that love? Watch this. What does it mean to overcome them? This is both, as I said, a doctrinal and an ethical victory. What is it? You believe. You believe in who Jesus is. You, you've not taken it flippantly. You've not made it just part of a, a church tradition. You're not just part of something that you live a completely unchanged life and, and yet have a profession that sounds good. No, you have come to grips that Jesus is, or better yet, it's come to grip you, perhaps. You've been changed by your acceptance of the fact that Jesus is God's Son. That He did come and live a sinless life. He was the Messiah. He did hang on a cross. He did die. He was resurrected. And your whole being has been transformed by your acceptance of that truth. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You believe He came in bodily form. Do you see how it lines up with what John is saying? And that truth 
has transformed who you are so much so that you now love people that you didn't love before and perhaps those that aren't even deserving of your love or indeed, not perhaps, but indeed, those that aren't even deserving of your love, you love them. What does it mean to overcome them? You believe. Now, let's refer back just for a second to chapter 2. Let me draw something back in that we talked about before because to me it is so powerful. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, 21, or 20, 21, and 22. Remember this? John wrote this, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? There it is again. What do they do with Jesus? That's the liar. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? You're not filled with a lie. You're filled with the truth. You've accepted that truth that Jesus is God's Son. The last part. This is the Antichrist. There it is again. He who denies the Father and the Son. John said it earlier in chapter 2. Now he's saying it again in chapter 4 that the acceptance of the knowledge of who Christ is and your submission to that truth and your allowing that transformative truth and the work of the Holy Spirit to change you, you've overcome that lie. You've overcome that rejection of who Christ is. You have overcome the spirits uh, that rule this world and because you've accepted Christ, you've overcome them. Wow, what a, great, what a great position that you and I are in. The emphasis here is at the same time on the who is in you and that he is in you. Isn't that good? You, you, you not only know him, you know that he's in you. He's transformed you. It's both. It is both an acceptance of the truth and an embracing, a taking it in. And you've been changed by that. It's not, it's not religious rhetoric to you anymore. You've accepted who Jesus is, and not in some empty, rhetorical, church tradition way. And I, I love good church tradition, but listen. No, this thing has come inside you. It's, it's living and active in you now. It's changing you. The uh, Verse 5, listen to this. says, They are from the world... Therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. This is the spirits that he's talking about, the they, uh, and they speak, and the world listens. Now, you encounter this every day. Whether you know it or not, you've seen this verse over and over. Someone... Someone suggests, someone uh, puts into place a biblical truth, or they live their life according to a biblical truth. A politician says something about God, or in something more than a religious empty shell. They demonstrate a transformed life, transformed by acceptance, genuine acceptance of who Christ is, and then it changes their life in a way that they are never the same and the world rejects them. Um, it's okay, watch this, it's okay if you have a profession of that, as long, and, I, and I'm sorry to say it like this, as long as it really doesn't change the way you live. The moment that it transforms who you are and you begin to live uh, like you actually believe what you say, 
then the world won't listen to you anymore, or rarely does it. Um, there is, however, a, a doctrinal, uh, an ethical, and a philosophical position that is embraced by the world. You see it every day. There are hot, hot topic buttons. There are uh, hot button topics. There are things that you can talk about and things that you can't. There are things that you can, that you can uh, believe in and things that you can't. And it's a constantly moving target, depending upon the whims of society. There is, as I said, a doctrinal, an ethical, and a philosophical position that is embraced by the world. And that position shapes how they speak, and it endears them to the world. Now, let's remember for a second how John uses the term world. Remember that? We've seen that before, all the way back in John chapter, or 1 John chapter 2. Do you remember that? He said this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So this isn't just talking about anything that's, I don't know, you know, you don't have to sit in sackcloth and ashes all the time and, you know, and throw dirt on your head. Uh, you know, if you have anything at all, then you've loved the things of the world. That's not what it's talking about. But it is talking about this anti-Christ, anti-Jesus, anti-truth of the gospel, anti-transformative uh, gospel um, philo philosophical view that's in the world today. That's what John's talking about. All of the systems, all of the things that make up uh, the parts of this world's systems that pull people away from God. Now, he says that they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. Their speech, their ideas, what they do is informed by the systems of this world. Not Jesus. Remember, they have it's anti-Christ. They have rejected the truth of Jesus, rejected his lordship. They do not submit. They live according to their own design. And the world loves them for it. Why is that? Have you ever thought about that? Uh, I, I can measure it from my own life. Um, at any time in my life that I have been in error and I knew it, or in sin, and I knew it, I didn't look for those who would confront my sin. I didn't want to find those who would challenge me. No, I wanted to find those who would endorse what I was doing. I looked for a community that believed like me, that acted like me, and that would say what I was doing was okay. And that is, that's just humanity. All of us do that. So, consequently, uh, the philosophies and the ethics and the doctrine, if you will, that throws off the Lordship of Jesus and throws off a consecrated life and throws off a sacrificial life and throws off putting God first, seeking first the kingdom of God. Well, the world loves the rejection of those things and the embracing of everything else. So because they speak from the world, the world listens to them. But verse 6 says this, we are from God. Now, this is not arrogance. And this has two, a two-prong application here. This isn't arrogance. This is John establishing what it means to live for God and what it means to live for the world. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God do, does not listen to this. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, let me tell you a couple of things that this isn't, first of all. 
This isn't a uh, this isn't a verse of scripture that preachers get to use to beat you about the head with. Look, uh, I am from God, and whoever listens to me is listening to God. You you probably have heard some nonsense like that before. In that sense, in that context, this is only applicable. In that context now, in the context of an individual person or a group of people being from God, there is a group of which John is a part that can say that in that context. Uh, John's an apostle. John is being used of God to pen the word of God, and we ought to listen to him. And John is also dealing with some uh, contextual things in his time where false disciples and false apostles were trying to pervert uh, the New Testament church, and Paul deals with this a lot, and John deals with it, where they have to, uh, they have to sort of take to task those false leaders and say, look, we're from God, they're not. But in general, this isn't a verse of Scripture that any preacher should use to try to convince you that he is something or he isn't something. Uh, test the spirits. Amen? There you go. But this is in a different context as it relates to the body of Christ as a whole applicable to all of us. All right? Remember, I'm using it in two ways. John is an individual, and then John is a part of the body of Christ of which you and I are a part. And he says, we, all of us, are from God. Remember what the qualifier was. We love and we have accepted the fact that Jesus is from God. We've accepted his lordship. We've accepted his messianic claims. And because of those things, you are from God, praise the Lord. That knowledge that 1 John chapter 2, 20 talks about, that anointing that brings knowledge, because we have knowledge, makes us part of God's kingdom. The good news is, whosoever will may come. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of the truth. Anyone can get in God's family if they'll simply accept the lordship of Jesus, accept his free gift, and then allow him to transform their lives. Listen, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Now, keep this in the context. John is an apostle, and he is a scribe of God's word. As I said, this is not a call to believe whatever a preacher says, but rather John is speaking about the truth of the kingdom and the truth of the word. And those that accept God's word and accept the truth of it and listen to what John is being used to write down are listening to God um, and is listening to what John says. He is speaking about the truth of the kingdom and the truth of the word of God. Those who accept the lordship of Jesus and his messianic claim and authority are of God. And those who reject those things are not of God, regardless of what they say and regardless of what they do. So where does that leave us? With a, another great test of the genuineness of somebody's testimony of who Jesus is to them. Do you remember the first one? Do you love? Do you love? Let's do this for a minute. Let's not apply it to anybody else. Let's do what the Scripture would admonish us to do. Let's not judge others more severely. Let's get the log out of our eye before we try to get the speck out of somebody else's. 
Let's apply this to ourselves. Do I love? Do I love those around me? Do I serve those around me? Does the kingdom of God and the love displayed by Jesus in His sacrificial death, does that exude from my life? Does it exude from your life? And then John gives us a second qualifier for the spirit of a thing or a unique spirit, and that's this. Does that spirit acknowledge Jesus as God's Son more than proclamation, but in the in the substance of the life. What about you? Have you come to a place where you have acknowledged both in proclamation as well as well as in how you live your life that Jesus is your Lord? That's what John is encouraging us to do to make sure that our profession is true and that we are doing and being all that God has called us to be. Well, that's good stuff, but that's heavy stuff. Amen? So, the next time you need to know whether a thing is of God, don't base it on how you feel. Watch and see if that thing, if that spirit, if that individual, if that organization, see what it does with the acknowledgement of Jesus as God's Son and His Lordship and His incarnation and His, uh, and his worthiness of our devotion and our adoration. See something, see someone that does that over a long period of time, submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, submitted to His messianic claim, and submitted to His worthiness of our devotion and our praise, and see them do that for a long time, that thing's of God. All right? It might not, watch this, it might not raise its hands like you do when you worship. It might not be as exuberant, but it loves Jesus, and it loves others, and you see that spirit coming out, you can know that that individual, that person, that organization, the spirit controlling that thing, that's the spirit of the Lord. Amen? Well, listen, this has been good. Thanks so much for uh, joining us. I hope uh, the different setting uh, worked a little bit for you. We'll, uh, we'll be switching things up and finding new ways to do this better. So thank you so much for your prayers. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Once again, uh, if you haven't already joined us in Pastor Roy's Bible Reading Group, uh, search Facebook right now and find it and uh, just ask to join. I'll see it. I'll approve it. And you'll uh, now a little over 170, 170 people that are reading through the scripture 15 minutes a day, seven days a week in uh, a year. You'll read through the whole Bible. And it's that word that takes the subjective nature of our relationship with the Lord out, makes it something solid And let me tell you, in the days that we live in, you need that solidity. You need to know that you know who the Lord is. God bless you. Have a great night. We'll see you back here Sunday morning, 1030, for a great time in God's uh, Word and a great time of worship. Have a great evening. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.